A number of years ago, God laid it upon my heart to uh, pick out a passage of Scripture and pray it for you every single day of that year. Usually about uh, October, November, as the year's ending up, I start to pray, God, what do you want me to pray for the congregation every day for the following year? God led me to different verses. Uh, a few years ago, he led me to Deuteronomy 33, 25, that your strength would equal your days. That was in January. In March, just two months later is when COVID hit. Another year, God led me to, to pray Jeremiah 2.13 for you, where God says, uh, do, do not forsake me, the source of living water, and dig wells for yourselves that don't hold any water. And I prayed that for you every day. One year, I prayed John 1.14. The Bible said Jesus is full of grace and truth. And I prayed that every one of you would be full of grace, but also full of truth. And then last year, we saw in the video just now, God led me to 3 John chapter 1, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my, see that my children walk in truth. And I prayed every day for you last year that you would walk in truth. It's a blessing to see the video and how God answered that prayer in so many different ways. This year, for 2024, God has led me to a small verse in the back of Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 12. That's what I'm going to pray for you every day. And I want us to look at it this morning. Read with me verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, that's my prayer verse. Let me explain it throughout the course of this message and look carefully at the verse and see what I will be lifting you up and praying for you for in 2024. First of all, letter A on your outline, who was Epaphras? Paul, out of the clear blue, just says, and Epaphras, by the way, has been praying for you. Who was Epaphras? So let's, let's look at that. Whenever you think of the great and godly men in Scripture, you don't really think of Epaphras. I mean, New Testament, you think of Paul, and you think of Peter, and James, and John, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Andrew, always bringing somebody to Jesus, but you never really think of Epaphras. Maybe because he's only mentioned three times, twice in Colossians, and once in the book of Philemon. But the more I began to study the life of Epaphras, the more I want to be like him. His name means charming. Okay, maybe I won't get to be well like him in every way. His name is a Greek name, it's, uh, which means he was a Gentile. And most of the church there at Colossae were Gentiles. But let me tell you the story of Epaphras because you probably don't know it. Epaphras was living in a small town of Colossae, which is at the base of Mount Cadmus in what is now Turkey. It was called Asia Minor at the time. And so it's a little small town there. It's near the current city of Honaz. Uh, they have not excavated the, the site, the biblical site of Colossae yet. They have Philippi. They have Ephesus. Uh, they have a lot of other biblical places. But they've not excavated. They will. They'll get, they'll will. They'll be able to have access to it eventually. But right now it's not excavated. We just know it's somewhere near Honaz. 
Colossae, 500 years before Jesus, was a thriving metropolis. Man, I mean, it was bustling and going. And a lot of people in Colossae, because they produced a, a type of wool that was dark red, and they, they shipped it everywhere, and everybody came there to get it. It was called Colossinum. So a lot of people think that's why they named the town after this wool Colossinum. They named it Colossae. But by the time of Paul, and really the time of Jesus, Colossae had devolved into just a little small town of nothing. Hardly anybody there. Small town, wasn't significant at all. It was just in the Lycus Valley, on the place to somewhere else. And you really didn't live in Colossae unless you were from Colossae. About the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, a great, great earthquake hit around 60 to 62 A.D., that's the exact same time Paul right, wrote. So we don't know if the earthquake hit before he wrote or just after he wrote. They, most scholars say probably just after because he didn't even mention it, and it devastated the community. They really didn't rebuild back a lot, and so you've got this little town out there just in the middle of nowhere, and there was a man living there by the name of Epaphras in this little town. Don't know what he did for a living, but that's where he lived. On one occasion... Epaphras traveled from Colossae 120 miles to the east to a large, thriving city called Ephesus. Ephesus was, you talk about blowing and going now, I mean, it was the second largest city in, in, the, in the known world. It was the capital of Asia. It was a seaport town. You'd stop in there on a trade route going from North Africa to Europe. All kind of merchants, all the time dealings. 225,000 population, that's a lot for that day, and Ephesus was thriving. As you walk down the streets of Ephesus, you would see medicine, and you would see libraries and education, the library of Celsus, and you would also see gods that would line the streets because they came from everywhere, so they had every kind of god. So on one occasion, Epaphras left his small town and headed to Ephesus. We don't know why. Probably to do business, but we don't know why. But little did he know, when he got there, God would do business with him. Epaphras, in Ephesus, ran into a man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. They became friends because Paul lived in Ephesus for three years, as long as he stayed anywhere. And they got to meet and be friends, and so it wasn't long before Paul shared with Epaphras about Jesus and a Savior that he needed. And Epaphras was convicted by the Holy Spirit and gave his life to Jesus. That began a friendship with Paul and a mentorship between Paul and Epaphras. On the way back home, after he had stayed for a while in Ephesus, 120 miles back to the west of Colossae, Epaphras gets there and starts telling all of his friends and family about this new faith he has in Jesus. And he started telling the entire Lycus Valley, Hierapolis and the other communities there. And several of them began to trust Jesus too. He led them to faith in Christ. And they finally got enough believers there in Colossae that they began a church. Epaphras organized them into a church body. They didn't have a building like we have, so they met in a home. And they met in the home of one of the new church members that just got saved by the name of, who was very wealthy, by the name of Philemon. 
which is the same Philemon in the book of New Testament book. So Philemon met in the house, church across they gathered. Epaphras, the one who led them to faith in Jesus, was their pastor. And they began to do pretty well. The church began to grow. They heard one day that the apostle Paul, who they loved and saw as like a grandfather because they led their pastor to the Lord, they heard that Paul had gone to Rome, and when he got to Rome, he was thrown in prison because he preached the gospel under what was called house arrest. You stay in a house, but you don't get to go anywhere. Well, they heard that, so the church of Colossae said, why don't we take up an offering and send it to Paul to encourage him? Why don't we collect an offering? Why don't we give him a gift? And we'll have our pastor, Epaphras, travel to Rome, take him the gift, encourage his spirit. See how he's doing. So they did. Gathered the money, gifts together, and Epaphras took it to Rome to Paul. As soon as Epaphras got to Rome, he was thrown in jail too. Why? Probably for preaching the gospel. But he was thrown in jail, and guess who they had him beside? Paul. So there they are in jail together. And he gives him the gifts and encourages him. He says, my congregation wants to give you these gifts because we, we want to encourage you. We love you. See you as a grandfather in the faith. Paul was moved. So moved by this, he told Epaphras, I'm, I want to write a letter back to the church. And whenever you leave the prison here and go back home, I want you to take the letter and read it to the entire congregation because I, some things in my heart I want to tell them. So he did, wrote the letter, and the letter that went back was the letter we know as Colossians in the Bible. Tucked away in the very back chapter of that book, that letter, Paul made one comment about their pastor, Epaphras, and he told them, I want you to know something. Your pastor is praying for you. And here's how he does it. And here's what he says. Now, my question was, when I read that, how did Paul know? How did he know this is how the pastor prays for his people? And this is what he says. Probably because right there in jail, every day he was gone, he heard Epaphras praying for the people back home. He probably heard it and witnessed it. And so he wanted them to know, even when he's away from you, your pastor's praying for you. Now, I want us to look at the, the passage, at what he said, how he did it, and I want us to see that this is going to be my commitment to you for 2024, as I pray for you. Look at letter B on your outline, a pastor's characteristics. We are told some things about Epaphras, and all of them are important. Look at the first thing we're told. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you? Who is one of you? I can't think of a greater title for a pastor than to say he is one of the people. Folks, I'm not to be up here above you on a pedestal. I'm not to be below you to be walked upon. I'm one of you. One of you. 
I truly feel like that's the case here at First Baptist Church. First Baptist Church is it's my church. Not just where I work. This is my church. You're my people. 19 years of my life I've given to be here with you. Raised a family here. My wife and I raised a son here. He was a year old whenever we came, and I was carrying him around on my shoulder, and now he'd carry me on his shoulder. <laughs> this is the only church he's ever known. This is, there's not a better church to raise a child in than right here. And he had, from the time he was preschool to children to youth, all the way through, he had godly mentors and godly leaders who poured into his life. And, and you're one of us. You're, you're part of our family. We love you. I want you to know that. You're not just church members. You're friends. And when I pray for you, I'm not just praying for church members. I'm praying for friends. There are some pastors that try to pastor a church detached, removed emotionally and aloof because they've been hurt in previous churches and they're not going to let this new one hurt them again. And you can't do that. You can't pastor that way. Everything, everything comes out sounding sterile because it is. You've got to be one of them. And you've got to be one of us. Hudson Taylor, I know some of you know his story, 18, mid-1800s, he was living in Great Britain. And he felt God calling him to go as a missionary to China. Back in that day, nobody went to China. They said the Chinese are not receptive to the gospel, they're a different kind of people. No missionaries went to China. So Hudson Taylor felt impressed to leave Great Britain and go to China as a missionary, and, and in spite of everybody saying don't go, family said don't go, friends said don't go, church members said don't go. But he went. When he got there, he saw they were right. The Chinese were not receptive to him. They were not, they didn't receive him well at all. It didn't go well. And he decided to do something unique. He decided to do something that no missionary had ever done before. And whenever he did it, oh, he was heavily criticized by his church back home and other missionaries saying, you don't do that. But guess what he did? He started to dress like the people, like a Chinese. He began to wear his hair like they wore their hair. And then missionaries said, no, no, you don't do that. You bring who you are from the West, and you bring the gospel, and that's the gospel, who you are. You don't become like them. But Hudson Taylor did. He dressed like they dressed. Something happened. They began to accept him. And hear him. Because he was one of them. Now today, that's just what missionaries do. But back then they didn't. And he was the first. He stayed in China 54 years. And by the time he left, I'm rather 20,000 people converted to Jesus. He started 125 schools where Jesus could be taught and he was responsible, Hudson Taylor, for bringing 800 missionaries eventually to China. All because he dressed like they dressed. 
Ils ont un verbe. So I want you to know I'm one of you, and you're one of me, and I thank you for being friends of my family. But notice the next phrase, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. His first priority as pastor was not the church, it was Jesus. First priority was not his family, it was Jesus. My first priority is not you, it's him. And my first priority is not my wife, my son. It's Jesus. Because I am a slave of Jesus. The word servant there, doulos, was literally the word for slave in the New Testament. It was, a, it was an honor. Believers saw it as an honor to call themselves a doulos of God. Now today, we don't like the word slave. In fact, we can't use it. In fact, some places say, don't use that word. Use another word because slave has such horrible connotations in our history as Americans. And, and that's true, it does. But it's a powerful image of a Christian. You are a slave of Christ. A slave is owned. A slave belongs to someone else. A slave does what they're told. A slave has no rights because their owner calls the shots. So Paphras was one of them, and he put Jesus first. But notice the third thing about him. It says, verse 12, servant of Christ Jesus greets you, struggling, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Whenever he prayed for you, he struggled. He didn't just breathe your name to the Lord. Oh, God, there's Job. Bless him. And he goes right on. No, no. He was struggling for you. The word struggling there literally means, some translates it, wrestling, because it's the word agonizomai in Greek. We get the word agony from it, agonize from it. It was a wrestling term. They had wrestling back in those days. Very popular, and they have like Olympic games back in those days. In their Olympics, the wrestling matches, those were the most popular. And so it was a wrestling term. That it means to wrestle, agonizomai, you go back and forth and back and forth. And that's the word Paul chose to describe Epaphras praying for his people. He's agonizing. He's wrestling with God on your behalf. Folks, this next year I've committed to pray for you. I'm not just going to throw your name up to God and say, oh, there's, there's Joe. Bless him. I'm going to agonize for you, contend for you. But notice the word prayer. Wrestling, struggling for you in prayer, and the word that Paul uses for prayer is not the usual word. The words, usual word for prayer is eukamai in Greek. Eukamai just means pray. It means somebody's praying. It doesn't describe intensity. doesn't describe anything else. Just praying. But whenever Paul adds the prefix pros, P-R-O-S, to it, it strengthens it. Pros means face-to-face. 
So the word that Paul used to describe Epaphras' prayer for his people wasn't just standing, oh, God bless them. He's wrestling. He's looking God in the face and saying, here are my people. I want to bring them to you. It's a powerful word. Man, this Epaphras, he was, he was some pastor. That's how I want to be. Approaching God face to face, wrestling for you with Him. Now let's look at what He said in His prayer. Let her see on your outline of Pastor's prayer. He said two things. He didn't ask for a lot, He only asked for two. And those are the same two things I'm going to ask God for you, 2024. Let's look at them. Number one, Epaphras asked that they may stand mature in Christ. As he was agonizing, going face to face with God, he was saying, oh dear God, the church members here in Colossae, may they be mature in Christ. Spiritually mature. I want to be honest with you, many of you are, are not where you need to be with spiritual maturity. And I'm going to pray for that for you. Some of you are not as knowledgeable about this book as you need to be. Be honest. You've been a believer 30 years and you don't know it any better than you did 30 years ago. Some of you. You need to know what it's about. You need to know what genre it's from. You need to understand it. Know the background. You need to memorize it. You need to read it. You need to know this book better than you do. And folks, that's not an issue of your time. You don't have the time to do it or priorities. That's a spiritual maturity issue. Some of you need to make 2024 a year of the book where you get to know it better. Our culture, I guarantee you, whew, you better know this book today and where we live in. And part of your spiritual maturity is knowing it and reading it. And I'm going to pray for that for you. Some of you, your prayer life is not that good. Be honest. The average Christian spends three minutes a day in prayer. Three minutes. How, do you, how well do you get to know somebody in three minutes? Your prayer life needs to be better. Others of you, you're not as faithful at church as you need to be. You're here once a month. You're here once every two months. And then another Sunday, you might watch in your pajamas. That's not a priority issue of your schedules, folks. That's a spiritual maturity issue. You're not spiritually enough to commit mature enough to commit to be here so i'm going to be praying for you to develop spiritual maturity so you'll be faithful to be where god has commanded you to be every week i'm going to be praying for that some of you don't give financially like god commanded you give some not a percentage you give every now and then not consistently that's not a financial issue. That's not even an issue whether you believe the Bible or not. That's a spiritual maturity issue. I'm going to be praying for that. Some of you don't serve much with us. You attend on Sunday, but you don't really serve in a ministry here. You need to. Use your spiritual gifts and serve. I'm going to be praying for that. Some of you have vices to still work on. Some of you still watch pornography. And some of you lust. And some of you have a temper problem. 
That's a spiritual maturity issue. Those both are. I'm going to be praying for you. Some of you haven't forgiven somebody that you should have forgiven a long time ago. That's a spiritual maturity issue. So, I just want you to know, I'm going to be praying for your maturity because that, that encapsulates a lot of things. The problem is, many of us don't want to address those. We're comfortable. Comfortable coming to church and being here, and the longer we're in church, the less we want to change. And I'm going to be praying for that, that God would give you the want to to do more of these things and stand fully mature in Christ. Now, the wording that Paul uses is interesting because the word stand there is the word histome. It means to take something and set it firmly in place. I mean, you set it there, it's good and solid, and nobody's moving it. And that needs to be how we are in a culture that wants, to, wants you to move into the wind where what they're believing in value and want you to go with them. You need to somehow be firmly fixed. And that's what Paul prayed for. Paul said, your pastor at, 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 at Colossae, Epaphras, he is praying for you to be fixed, mature, complete. So let me ask you this morning, where... Where are you in spiritual maturity? What do you need to work on in your own life? It's different for every person, but what do you need to work on so that I can pray for you to be fully mature in Christ? Here's the second thing he prayed. Number two, Epaphras prayed that they would be fully assured in the will of God. That's it. That they would be mature in their faith, stand mature in that faith, and they would know God's will and they would do it. And that's what I'm praying for you. Because God has a will for every one of you. You need to be in the middle of what His will is. Epaphras had a great desire and prayed for believers there in Colossae to be fully in the center of God's will. And that's my prayer for you as well. Fully assured, it's interesting, it's the, the word pleru in Greek. And it literally means if you take a cup and you fill it all the way top where you can't get another drop in without it spilling everywhere, like McDonald's does my drink all the time, to the very top, and so you're holding like this, you're spilling it everywhere, very full to the brim, that's pleru. That you are fully every drop of you in the will of God. Now, I would venture to say this morning that that's not describing all of you I wouldn't say that every one of us are every drop in the will of God where we should be but that's what I'm going to pray for you for this next year Belgian believers back in the mid 1500s they actually believed the will of God's found in scripture which I do as well, but they actually put it in their confession, the Belgian Confession of 1561, the first confession of faith that ever says, Article 7, you will find the will of God in the Word of God. And they're right. Have you ever wondered why churches aren't named after Epaphras? The St. Epaphras Baptist Church. Never heard that, have you? You hear St. Andrew, uh, St. Bartholomew, Catholic Church. You hear St. John's, St. Mark's, St. Matthew's. You never hear St. Epaphras. But boy, they don't come any better than him as a pastor. 
I would want him to be my pastor. So what is God's will for you? Where do you stand? What do you need to do to move closer to where every drop of you is in the middle of a God's will? A number of years ago, an 18-year-old young man was attending church. He was there every Sunday. But he, um, he wasn't in the middle of God's will. He knew it. He was running from that. Attended. He's there, he's there every week. And the young man eventually became seriously ill. Went to the hospital, got worse, ended up fighting for his life. And one night, family was called in, and he's not expected to live till the next morning. So they called the family in, and the young man's pastor went to the hospital to sit with the family in the waiting room. The doctor came out about 11 p.m. and said that the report wasn't good, that the young man was getting worse, vital signs were beginning, they'd always been stable, they were beginning to be unstable and doing everything they could, but he, he may not live till the morning. That was 11 o'clock. The pastor left the family in the waiting room and went to the chapel there at the hospital to pray. Every hospital has a chapel. He went to the chapel, 11 p.m. that night. He prayed until 4 a.m., praying for the life of this young church member that he had. Four o'clock in the morning, the pastor said, this peace came over me that God gave me. God was in control. The young man was going to be okay. He was going to live. He got up and he left, and he went back to the waiting room with, with the other family members. The next morning... Young man had turned the corner, was better, eventually would make a full recovery. And you probably know by now in the story that young man was me. And my pastor was Larry Stevenson. He shared that story with me after I got well, and he said, I, I'll wrestle for you in prayer for five hours. I texted him this week and told him I was going to share that story. And as we be preaching on Colossians 4.12. And he replied and said, thank you, Greg. That night strengthened my determination to pray without ceasing for the people I pastor. I know what it's like to have a pastor agonize with you, coming face to face with God, and God responding. And I want you to have a pastor like that too. From time to time this next year, I'm going to come in the worship center when nobody's here. I'm going to walk every pew. I'm going to kneel down where you sit. You see you all sit at the same place every Sunday. <laughs> I'm going to kneel down where, right in front of where you sit. I'm going to pray for you. Balcony, pray for you. Very back up there, back corner, I'll be praying for you in your spot. That you'll be fully mature. And you'll be in the center of God's will. Because I'm one of you. Lord Jesus, I thank you today for this passage. And thank you, God, for people like Epaphras. Thank you, God, for people like Larry Stevenson. And God, thank you for pastors who will agonize with their people. Lord, I pray today that you would help us this next year to be fully mature, 
areas that we all need to work on, but give us the want to to do it, not just go another year and be the same old spiritually immature person in 2025. And Lord, help us to know your will and stand in the middle of it. Some of that begins this morning, so Lord, I just pray during this invitation time, you give us the courage to make decisions we need to make. In Jesus' name, amen.